This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, today we're going to be looking at a war that um, gets overlooked, I guess, at times. We get talked about briefly. Um, has a couple different names, right? One of mm-hmm. the, Sometimes it's called the Forgotten War, and a couple are called that, but also the Second War for American Independence. We're looking at the War of 1812. Yep. I don't know if you noticed this, but, right? I don't know if you noticed this, but when I look at American textbooks, and not that I sit there and analyze American textbooks, like, um, you know, Elias, my teacher told me that's literally the premise of that book is to analyze chapters and topics in American textbooks. But the War of 1812 is getting less and less play um, in American history textbooks. And, you know, as there's more and more history coming in and as kind of what we concentrate on in history changes, uh, I remember when I first started teaching, War of 1812 was literally a chapter in a textbook with four separate sections. Um, now there is no four separate sections of the chapter. It's literally one section covers all of the war and also the war itself and in us textbooks concentrating more on the native American aspect of it, which again, I think this is the changing nature of history and what we concentrate on when we teach it, but it's much more inclusive of everyone else involved in it. Not just exactly. Yeah. Not just, it's, you know, not going on it's a big conflict. Yeah. I think yeah. there's more. There's less, I remember teaching about like all the causes and stuff. Like there was a lot of stuff I remember when we learned about it, just like the causes, the causes, the causes, yeah. and like some of the battle stuff. The well, other because stuff, there wasn't I many mean, battles, right? I mean, it basically was, it was kind of like a, I want to say a fake war because it was a war and people died. But again, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about, let's talk about the war of 1812. So yeah, I think, I think the consequences of the war are a lot bigger than people realize too. Yes. Then, well, we'll get to that. Okay. So War of 1812, uh, I think we don't have to say when it started. Um, It started in 1812. Um, Although what's interesting, ha, I'm going to just get this out of the way. The United States, when 9-11 happened, you and I were in college at the time. And a lot of people are like, oh, this is like the second time the United States was invaded. Um, And people thought of usually Pearl Harbor, but actually it was the War of 1812, which was the first real invasion of the United States. And, yeah, and the America, British, the country's young at this time, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, come on, 1776, right? So when the British invaded, the first invasion of War of 1812 by the British actually took place on September 11th as well. Da-da. Yes, I remember here, yes. So, all right, War of 1812. Essentially, the beginning, the 1800s, early 1800s, the whole war, uh, rather, the whole world is at war. I mean, the war is between Great Britain and... And Napoleon Bonaparte, right? France. So Great Britain and France are fighting. And it seems like almost every country in Europe is somehow involved. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're, all, they're all doing something. Spain's doing their thing. Exactly. Yeah, There's like all, a coalition all, all, of Austria, Prussia, Russia with Britain against Napoleon. There's just – this is a war, almost a world war, let's say that, right? And Britain and France at the time in these 1800s – and this starts, you know, this starts really in early 1800s. Um, the – the fighting really kind of fight, you know, goes on between 1803 and, and 1815, and it it's both on land and at sea. And Britain and France at the time are very much in this attitude of like you're either for us or against us. Like that's the big deal here. There's no neutrality. They're not respecting neutral neutrality of any nations. No. 
And as you mentioned before, Tom, the United States is a very young nation. And as that nation, we are trying to establish ourselves around the world, primarily through economic markets. Like we are trading with everyone, even though we fought against England for independence, we went right back to trading with England because that was a huge trade partner. So we're trading with England. We are trading with France. We're trying to establish some trade with Spain. Ultimately, no matter how you spin it, the United States is trying to create their own economy. And our trade, because we are so removed from the old world or Europe, depends heavily on the ability to navigate the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, that's key here. And this is where we get into really our- This is where the conflicts happen, yeah. Right? Between both of them. France and Britain are both getting involved here. Absolutely. So, So what's happening here, Tom? Like we said, they both, they're French and Britain are in that war, so they're both trying to cut off supplies from reaching the enemy. So both sides are blocking the United States from trading with the other. And then in 1807, Britain passes what's it called, the Orders in Council, which required all like the neutral nations. They had to get like a license before they mm-hmm. could trade with France, all the French colonies. And the, and the United States is like, well, we don't appreciate we don't want, We're not doing that. Is it's you're the one letting us do it, right? So that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the royal, what really the big thing issue here, this is what all the textbooks also always talked about, obviously, was that the Royal Navy, um, would, where they were practicing impressment, right? They're going in, they're yep. seizing American ships out at sea. They're taking this, the um, sailors from these ships and they're saying, I right, guess what? You are now members of the British Navy and you're not going to work for us. And that's basically what it was. And that was really outraging a lot of the Americans. We're saying, you, you can't be doing that. That's, that's you can't be kidnapping Americans. You can't like be that. kidnapping our soldiers. These are American citizens. They have American citizenship. And you're, yep. you're not respecting that. And the British just didn't care. Because one, they needed these they needed these extra soldiers to serve in their military. They needed it to yep. be able to fight Napoleon. So this happened in 1807. So it wasn't like a – a lot of times that's like, oh, this is going to – the Start war the started war, right yeah. after they started pressing. No, it took years, but this practice continued no matter what. Absolutely. And what's interesting about the impressment, kind of for some contextual information here, England has been at war continuously for like, you know, almost 100 years here. Like the British people are sick and tired of being at war. Uh, So you have the French and Indian, you have the American Revolutionary War. Now there's a war against uh, Napoleon's forces in France. I mean, these guys are done fighting. So there was such a big problem in England of people deserting. I mean, people desert all the time. Um, specifically sailors. So so England is known for its Navy, hundreds of ships. And all these sailors are deserting. Like they they want no part of it. And the easier way, or rather the easiest way to desert um, would be when they are in port, um, primarily when they are in trading ports or whatever around the world, where there is also American mercantile ships. Because the British feel that they could easily blend in with the American sailors, obviously, for you know the obvious reason, which is the language. So you have all these British sailors that are literally hopping on to American mercantile ships and kind of pretending to be Americans. And this is an ongoing thing. And, and England knows this. So when American trade ships are stopped at the seas going to, let's say, trade with France, the British, as you mentioned, based on this new law, will stop these ships and be like, hey, you can't trade with our enemy. The, you know, France is our enemy. But what they did is once they stopped these ships, they would search these American ships for their escaped British sailors. Now, if they didn't find any, they're like, ah, you're good enough. So they would impress or force these American sailors onto the British boats where they would force them to basically work. Now, the second the British ship would dock in any other port, those Americans oftentimes would escape 
And then that same British naval ship would then go and recapture some other poor American. Well, this kept on going on, which basically took away any freedom of the seas. And this was a, a, all over American newspapers, but also in contention in American Congress of, hey, England is just like stopping and kidnapping Americans. Like, how, how can we allow this? And meanwhile, France, on the other hand, um, is stopping our ships going to England at the same time. And again, these are all we are all supposedly friends, but France sees that as, well, you're given goods and trading with our enemy, except France doesn't impress American sailors. Um, what they do is they actually steal a lot of goods and products that are going to raw materials that are going to um and they justify it by basically they're trying to hurt their enemy. They're at war, so they're going to do what they need to do. And basically neither side is respecting the um, United States neutrality. And that's yeah. really what it comes down to a lot with this war is that the British in particular, the argument are, is that the British are not respecting the American nation, that they still see us as a colony in some way yeah. or like a less less than equal to themselves. And this all this is going to snowball. This you throw in the fact. I guess we're just going to like, you know, fast forward a little bit, I guess, if that's okay, Pete. With yep. everything with I mean, Native Americans. So what's basically going on here is that there's the British are also encouraging um, a lot of Native American tribes, particularly um, Tecumseh's tribe, right? That yeah. you need you need British support if you want to stop the Americans from expanding west. And basically, after um, what well, William Henry Harrison, they sell them weapons. I mean, when they sell, yeah, them, they, they sell give them weapons. They give them weapons. They're, they're arming them, and they're encouraging them. Take these guns, go fight, go fight the Americans, right? Don't let them ex- take your land. Don't let them expand west. Um, they actually team up with Tecumseh, right, yep. and things of that nature. And, um, and this is what it starts to split Congress because you have the Warhawks and you have the Doves. So the Warhawks are particularly from the um, South, Western and the South. They support the war, and a lot of the Federalists a lot of Western states, uh, because they're the ones that yeah, are being attacked by Native Americans. They're yeah. the ones being taxed, and, and it's, their commerce isn't tied up with trade with England like the Federalist ones, were mostly the New Englanders. They relied heavily on trade with Britain. They know, hey, going to war with Britain, they're our main trade partner. That's not going to be very profitable for us. And they were basically accusing the um, the Western and Southern congressmen of basically being like again war hawks and just p- trying to promote their expansionist I- ideas and agendas. Mm-hmm. So you have both sides are going back at each other. They're, they're going back, and um, eventually, then President Madison declares war. He that they wins out in the fall, and then on June eighteenth, eighteen twelve, the president um, asked for a declaration of war, and Congress voted for it, both the House and the Senate, but it was bitterly divided on this issue. Like, basically vote on geographic alliance. If you were in the North, you voted against the war. If you in the South or the West, you voted for the war. So the war. So it's the first time that actually the United States government um, goes to war. The United States goes to war. It's the first time we declare a war. Country. We are yep. officially at war as a country. Yep. And the first thing we do is say, let's go invade Canada. Yeah. So Which does not go over very well. No, not at all. For a bunch and of reasons. For a bunch of reasons. I think that what we need to also mention is the fact that, like, while this fight is happening of, you know, should we, should we not, should we, should we not, and as you mentioned, definitely a geographical thing, the United States at the time has two political parties. You have the Federalist Party, which is the original party of George Washington. They are pro-big government, uh, pro-business, very much located in Massachusetts, the North. These guys are all about business, um, mercantile shipping, across uh, the ocean, so on and so forth. And then you have the Democratic-Republican Party, which is that party of Jefferson and Madison as well. And that party is all about you know land and acquiring new land as well as um, expending 
farming and agriculture and the planter class and so on and so forth. And that is the party that particularly wants to expand the West, which is why they use these these new congressmen from these. They, we call them new congressmen because they came from new states that were really just created um, out West. And you, these congressmen, which become known in history as war hawks, are the ones that are like, hey, we want more land. We're just created these new states in the West. That's what we represent. And they're being attacked by these Native Americans. So as far as they're concerned, they're like, um, yeah, we want to go to war against Canada, as you mentioned, Tom. Like, they're not really about like, hey, Britain, you know, over there, because Britain is fighting against France right now. So Britain's really kind of not, they're kind of busy. They're not really interested in America. And we're, you know, we're kind of like, maybe we could just take Canada. Like, this might work out for us. Let's keep on expanding. Why not? Yep, and, um, and, and they f- they think it's going to be easy to take Canada, mostly because they don't. The British are at war with France, and they think that it's going to march in that everyone's going to um, just uh, you know accept them and so forth. But what you have to understand is both sides are also really unprepared for war at this point. Mm-hmm. America is a young country; um, we, they only have about twelve thousand men in the entire military, <laughs> and they're very poorly trained. Um, and like I said, Britain's busy fighting. They have, they have they're fighting. Most of their navy is being used to blockade France. They're on they're on the ground in Spain and Portugal fighting. Um, so they only had about over six thousand troops stationed in Canada, and they couldn't really spare much more from their war with France. And then Madison, though, is is kind of going with these hawks. He believed that um, the first goal of the war should be to take over Canada, and he yeah. assumed it was going to be easy to do. Even Thomas Jefferson previously. I'm um, talked about that the that he said that the uh, acquisition of Canada would be a mere matter of marching. They just assumed it would be super easy to just walk right in, and that's going to happen. But that's not the, it wasn't the case yeah. basically. So when those soldiers did invade, you know they were they weren't they were poorly led. Yeah, and I like the fact that you just brought up Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson, it's, you know, there's this belief that Canada would also want to be free and join the United States because they also spoke English, but. Thomas Jefferson did something that was really stupid before the War of 1812 because all the impressment and stopping over ships and all that stuff is happening during Jefferson's presidency, you know, because it started really in 1803. So in in 1807, Thomas Jefferson does what a 2006 poll um, of American historians listed as one of the top 10 biggest mistakes that American presidents have ever made in American history. Um, and that is the Embargo Act. So Thomas Jefferson basically said, hey, listen, if people are going to stop our ships, I'm not going to take sides between France and England. I'm basically just going to stop trading with everyone. He just restricted foreign ships from taking on cargo at U.S. ports. Just stop trade. Yeah, which and, is not going to hurt those countries as much as it's going to hurt the merchants here yeah, at that point. So like, it's just absolutely. Not yeah, merchants went out of business. Shippers went bankrupt. I mean, some people survived mainly by smuggling products across the Canadian border. So, like, Jefferson screwed up the entire U.S. economy. And in Madison, that's one of the first things Madison did when he followed Jefferson into office was get rid of the Embargo Act. And that's kind of what, you know, Madison wanted to be in the good graces of the American people. So he's like, yeah, you're right. I see what you see, you know, what you're doing and I understand this economic downturn and and this war is really affecting us. And that's kind of why he goes along with the Warhawks to, um, you know, ask Congress for permission to war. And in Canada, there's a few things that a lot of people don't realize, specifically my students, because War of 1812 is known for quite a few interesting facts, one of them being the fact that British soldiers came into the United States and burned the White House and Washington, D.C. And that's something we are going to talk about. But what we don't realize is that that was in retaliation for something that we did first. So... In 
the War of eighteen twelve at the very beginning, um, we declare war on England because, and we say because they're impressing our ships and and our sailors and stopping our ships on the waters, but also enticing Native American tribes against the United States. That's basically what we say in the declaration of war. Now, when we go into Canada, um, what ultimately happens is. Like you said, we're completely prepared. It's winter. Our soldiers are dying. And, the yeah, and all the Canadians, soldiers were in it for themselves, too. They were kind of just yeah. looking to see how they could better plunder more yeah. of us. Plunder, you're right. And also, like, we didn't expect the British Canadians to actually start firing at us. They're like, we we thought they were going to just hug us and be like, hey, let's do this. Um, we have a history of thinking people want us to liberate them, and it doesn't exactly go that way. <laughs> yeah, no. And this is just so, the beginning of that. So this invasion fails, right? Um we, you know, we basically cannot take over Canada. And therefore, as we are retreating, we burn down um, York, which is present day Toronto on April 27, 1813. And then afterwards, uh, we burn down Newark, which is now Niagara-on-the-Lake in December of 1813. So we are so upset that we can't take over Canada, we burned their two major cities and we march back, right? That was the whole thing. Now, um, that is why the British eventually burn our capital. They do this in retaliation for the fact that American forces burned down two Canadian cities in anger that they couldn't take over Canada. Um, the resistance to American military becomes like a nation-defining cause for Canada's people, and they celebrate the War of eighteen twelve to this day. Like it's a big deal. It's a big in thing, Canada, yeah, that's, because they, yeah. re, you know, they, they were able to stop American an American invasion. Huge thing. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. And you kind of briefly mentioned this before, but Tecumseh, who was the Shawnee chief, um, basically did something that was unprecedented. Or at least, well, Pontiac tried that, Pontiac's Rebellion in 1700s. But he created a military alliance of over two dozen um, Native American nations. And his whole major goal was to end westward expansion of white settlers. And armed, first of all, the fact that you have Native American tribes uniting, second of all, armed with British weapons and attacking and killing Americans on the frontier, like this was actually dangerous to Americans. And we viewed the British as the ones at fault for this, for enticing them. And the person that defeats this confederacy eventually becomes our president. And that's William Henry Harrison at the Battle of Tippecanoe. What was the thing when he ran for president? What did they say? Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. Yeah, that's what it was when he ran for president. Okay. Future podcast. Future podcast. Um, Well, so Canada doesn't pan out. And then we come back. And then we're at war, but we're like not really at war because England's not here to fight us. I mean, we need to acknowledge that because England's fighting Napoleon in Europe. So we're kind of just like, you know, la, 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 la. What do we do now? 
The only real fighting that actually does take place for like a year during this war, again, there's no fighting besides Canada at this point, um, is the war at sea. Like we actually do um, have some luck fighting the war against the British Navy. But we should mention that Britain, out of hundreds, hundreds of ships that they had in their Navy, only designated nine to fight against the United States. Nine. <laughs> yeah, this um, was a war too that both sides it wasn't popular oh yeah oh yeah this and was like a they, they, they were, British. yeah as soon as, it, as soon as it was going on both sides were like uh, now I want to say both, I mean, not everyone on both sides but remember there was even a call the New Englanders were still against it there were New Englanders considering seceding from the United States they did they were, they were just, a they were just convention you know, right yep. yeah they were just calling it Mr. Madison's war that's, that's you know figure something else out they ultimately voted against doing that but they wanted more state rights you had a bunch of British um and their problem that didn't even want it. One reason why the war even started was because they got a new prime minister. So that kind of, that changed everything in the war. Yep. All right. They, it worked out that the war did happen, but like, it was not something that both sides really, they got into it and they're like, Oh great. Now what? Yeah. You're right. The peace talks started almost immediately. Like the, immediately. the United like, States within like a month send in someone to talk about peace talks. Yeah. Britain was not going to send a huge invasion force over to try to like, you know, retake the United States and make them U.S. colony, make them British colonies again. And the U.S. wasn't going to have another long war of like attrition, just trying to kick the British. I just, it just wasn't going to, it wasn't going to happen like that. It wasn't going to be a repeat of 1776. Yep. And you're right. I, I mean, great point. So this war, therefore, because England kind of were like this, like annoying fly for them. And they're just like swatting us away. Like not now we're busy. <laughs> um, that's kind of how the United States manages to with just 16 ships, by the way, that was our Navy. Our Navy literally was 16 ships. Um, one of them, which is still around. I've actually been on that ship. Have you been to U.S. U.S. Constitution? Yes. US, yeah. yeah well, U.S.S. Constitution is a fun ship. Um, still around. Um, old Ironsides. But we were able to... Um, defeat and sink a few British ships, which to us, this is what was kind of dominating the papers. Like, wow, look at that. We're taking it to the mighty British Navy. Oh, it's it's well, propaganda right there. Wow, yeah, of course. I mean, because clearly... And they're trying to get national pride. I think the War of 1812 does bring a lot of national pride in. Yeah. Because we stood up to the British. We basically, it's basically we stood up to the big guy. We got knocked down, but we got back up. That's basically kind of like, if you want to sum it up right there, the War of 1812, yep. I would say. They knocked yeah. us down, but we got back up. They they didn't beat us. We didn't beat them, but but you know we showed them that we're willing to fight. And is it going to be worth it? Like you might, you you're bigger, you're stronger at the moment, but you keep on. You know we're not we're not going to be it's, we're not going to be some a pushover. And the British are right. like it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, if you guys are in Massachusetts, stop by the old Ironsides. But you did mention something interesting. The Hartford Convention in Massachusetts and Maine, this is kind of really the reason why Maine and Massachusetts split. Um, this is a precursor to Maine wanting to kind of have their independence from Massachusetts. But at this time, there is a, a very strong movement to separate New England from the rest of the colonies because New England was basing its almost entire economy apart from lumber uh, which you know, uh, which they sold to the British basically to build more ships, but between you know, it was also shipping and mercantile businesses. So this completely England, yeah. destroyed their economy fighting against England. So they were like, "This is so stupid," and most of these people were um, Federalists, this Federalist Party, and therefore after the war ended, the Federalist Party is kind of blamed as 
look at that. You were never really for us. You were never really supportive of the American, you know, veterans and soldiers. And and the Federalist Party falls apart. It literally ceases to exist. Therefore, when this war ends, the United States has only one political party, and that is the Democratic Republican Party. Or at that time, it becomes known as the Republican Party. Anyway, so essentially what happens is um, the British government right finally wins against napoleon well the first time they kind of ship him off right and at that point um they're like all right like wait what's happening in america like let's let's go take care of that so they do yeah and this it, is now they can start sending more in yeah yep and they kind of just they're like all right let's just send some Amer- you know british soldiers to america and these are battle-hardened just beaten napoleon soldiers like we have absolutely no chance whatsoever so what do they do 1914 the british um 1814 sorry 18 my bad in 1814 the british start i know right so raiding the uh, and burning all different towns along the atlantic coast and i mean the u.s you know quickly assembled american troops because that's what we could call them uh literally we're just running away from them for the most part um so the british troops enter washington dc and it's for in retaliation for the U.S. victory at Battle of York and the capital, you know, which was the capital of Upper Canada. Yeah, burning, burning Toronto. They yeah. start burning, yeah, they start burning down um, into, in retaliation, Washington, D.C. Then they burn the famous um, American presidential mansion, which is which was made out of concrete, mostly in bricks. Uh, it was like a grayish color. It was after its burning when it was repainted white, to cover all of these stains from the fire and really kind of adopts the name or nickname of the white house, as opposed to the presidential. Mansion. That's probably one of the most um, well-known. Well, that and Dolly Madison. Well, Dolly Madison saving George Washington. Well, she had, as she's running, as they're fleeing, getting ready to flee, because there's no way they can stop the British. She doesn't, she save a whole bunch of um, portraits, right? Of yep. George Washington. Yep. And other she's things. Yeah. Well, you got, you got to make sure that, you know, um, Posterity. Madison's not captured. Well, that and Madison doesn't get captured. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're leaving the capital. And they, I think they watch it burn up from like a hill. Yeah, it's so embarrassing, right? You, you know, we're being. That's what it is. It, it's, yeah, it's militarily, it's very embarrassing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we start this war. We don't really fight much. Then the British decide to come and fight it like two years after we declare it. And we are running away. And literally, I mean, the president, like you said, Tom, just ran away. And his wife remained in the White House to the very last second. Upon which she decides, first of all, everyone knows this story where she asked, we kind of did this in the first ladies when she asked um, the kitchen staff to make a nice feast for the invading British. And then she uh, managed to save Washington's portrait so that future generations could have it before she got out of there and they burned the place down. As far as we're you know, the war and the battles are concerned, I mean, that's really the only thing that happens well, to burn DC. They, they burn that. And then there's a couple Baltimore. other smaller battles. Well, let's talk about yeah, so Baltimore and have, New Orleans. Well, the big one, I guess, is one, there's a big one on September 11th again, right? 1814 yep. at the Battle of uh, Plattsburgh. It's yep. basically where the they, the American Navy, they, they defeat the British fleet. They're able to defeat it there at uh, Lake Champlain. And they kind of just drive them back. And then September 13th, 1814 is when Baltimore's Fort McHenry, which stands that 25 hours of straight bombardment. And that's famously where Francis Scott Key gets inspired to write the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Which will cool eventually become too. which will eventually become adopted as the national anthem what, nineteen thirty one? So it takes a while yeah. before it becomes yeah. the official national anthem. 
Yeah, initially it's a it's a poem. Um, yeah. Because what happens is he's a, he's an attorney, and the British came, you know, when they got to Baltimore, and they can't really get to Baltimore because they're being shelled by this fort, Fort McHenry. Um, they do wind up getting some British soldiers on land and seizing, or rather not, I guess, kidnapping or arresting, I would say, um, a couple of Americans that they viewed as treacherous. Uh, so they put these two Americans on these on this British warship. And one of these Americans um, writes a note for his lawyer, and his lawyer is Francis Scott Key. And Francis Scott Key hops on um, a rowboat, gets himself up there to, um, and you know, to this warship, and he pleads his client's case, which he wins. Except the British are like, "All right, well, we can't let you off the ship yet, though. You got to wait till the morning because we have to finish like shelling this, you know, fort." Um, so he's like, "All right, fine." So he stays on his ship while all night the British are just bombarding Fort McHenry. And in the morning, Francis Scott Key goes up on the deck. He, you know, it's really smoky from all the, you know, um, charges that were being blown up the night before. And he kind of looks through it and then he realizes that like the American flag was still there. And he's inspired to write a poem that we know today know as our uh, national anthem, which, by the way, was not. It wasn't really the main song. America the Beautiful was in contention. Like there was quite a few songs when it was being decided to have a national anthem. Like Star Spangled Banner like just won out. Which is kind of an interesting fact. And the biggest battle of them all. The one that that's the battle of most well known, yeah. Is the Battle of New Orleans. Right. And that that really takes place because of what's going on and some of those other battles that we talked about, because the British forces left the Chesapeake Bay area after they their failed attack on Baltimore and began gathering their forces for a campaign against New Orleans. And that's where they're going to run into well, it's kind of like a weird thing. And I know people are aware of this. Most people, this, the Battle of New Orleans, which is probably one of the most famous battles of the war happens when the war is already over technically. Yep. So what happens in this battle? Let's talk about well, it's basically the um, British invade, they attack, they try to take it, but they are soundly defeated at the hands of the future U.S. President, Andrew Jackson. And a bunch and the, of, basically, like, pirates. <laughs> pirates, yeah, he basically gets a whole bunch of, bunch of ragtag people together and say, let's go, and <laughs> they're able to hold off the British. They fight him back. Literally, yeah. Uh, and the British want the New Orleans, because they want to control the Mississippi. They think yes. that if they could control the Mississippi... Then and they already have a blockade of all the Atlantic, you know. Then they they could somehow basically surround the United States, which is interesting because that's the philosophy of the Union troops in the American Civil War later on. But to get to the Mississippi, they need to first get through New Orleans. And here is Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is already known. He's not president yet. He's not politically known. This is what makes him a national. This is what makes him well because. Like you said before, that journalism is that they announce this victory, right, at New Orleans, and then they say the war is over. So a lot of people yeah. can say, oh, we, we won the war because of this battle. No, the war is already over, but it kind of like, oh, we won the last battle of the war or whatever. So we kind of, yeah. oh, the, we won this battle and the war is over. So it left a really, like, positive feeling about the war in a lot of American people's psyches. Yeah, and the misconception that, you know, like he ended it. Um, however, he did. I mean, basically he built these – there's a few things that are interesting because Andrew Jackson, we should probably do a podcast on one day, but 
this guy was shot in a, a bar brawl like a couple days before he was called in to defend New Orleans. So he literally had his arms still in a sling. He needed help getting on a horse. He wound up having like crazy case of diarrhea, infected um, gun wounds when, when he like creates this ragtag force to defend New Orleans. And he makes them up out of Tennessee militia, some local merchants, um, some Native Americans, some pirates. And basically what they do is they build up these fortifications, like a precursor to um, trench warfare. And they just wait for the British to try to attack the only position that the British were able to attack because everything around it was marshes. And they do. And, and it's it's kind of crazy how many British people. I think he loses like three British people. I'm sorry. He loses three Americans. And I'm pretty sure he kills like hundreds of Brits that are trying. So essentially the British are like, all right, we give up. We, we can't take New Orleans. It just, it just wasn't worth the loss yet to them. Yep. And then you have the actual news comes out that there was a Treaty of Ghent um, yes. signed on Christmas Eve, right? In 1814, it declares an armistice. Basically, as you mentioned earlier, Tom, there is no victor here. It's just like, can we just stop this? Like England's like, we're tired. We just fought against Napoleon. You guys are like a new nation. You're like in your 20s. Like, what do you know? You know, like, let's just, well, 30s, I guess. Um, kind of like us. We're in our 30s. What do we know? So, yes. Um. Anyway, they reach an agreement, and basically by 1815, there's a commercial treaty that reopens trade between the two countries. Um, and life goes on like it, like nothing happened. Like we don't really gain anything from this. Yeah, we don't gain it. Yeah, like we wanted them to formally agree they would end impressment, and they don't. But after yep. Napoleon's war, they kind of didn't need impressment anymore. It didn't happen. Yep. They wanted. The, the British wanted a, a, a formal Indian state in their Northwest. They just abandoned yeah. that. They said, forget it. We don't, we don't, we don't really care about that anymore. Um, yeah. So a lot of the things, but what it does do ultimately is both sides just agree. All right. Let's stop fighting. And it does kind of bolster American morale. Both sides kind of feel like they won. Yes. Um, and then because the, the, the British kind of see this as a continuation of the, of their war with Napoleon. So they're like, we beat Napoleon. That's really what we're concerned about. The Canadians feel very pumped up about it because we repelled this American invasion. So they feel very not, they feel a lot of national pride. The Americans feel like, oh, now we're going to be taken seriously as a country because we fought the British again. Really, the ones that lost the most were the Native Americans because now the British are not going to help them out anymore. So they're yep. going to be totally open to American Western expansion. And that's really what's going to happen now from this point on. And for the United States, uh, what it really does is it kind of starts off what becomes known in history as the era of good feelings, which is just this yeah. national pride grows leaps and bounds. Yeah. And it ends uh, the Federalist Party, like you said. Yeah, it yeah. ends the Federalist Party because it's like, hey, if you were in a Federalist Party against the war and look, we survived. It's like we took – it's like you, you, know, you take the biggest punch from Mike Tyson and you're still standing. Like that's basically what it says. There's certain pride in that um, because I know I wouldn't be standing if I took a big punch from Mike Tyson. Um, but the, uh, the Federalists were seen as traitors. So you're like, yeah, I'm not really a Federalist anymore. And boom, you only have one part political party in the United States um, going into 1816. Like, there's just the Republicans. That's it. Until, you know, a guy from this war says, yeah, I don't like that, and starts his own party, the Democratic Party, and that guy is Andrew Jackson. So... Would you say needless war? I don't know. What do you think? I think it was a war that was wanted by some, like we said, not wanted by all. But again, that's always a case of war too. 
but it, it was basically, I think it was a war. A lot of it was fought because of pride on both sides because there was still bitter feelings from the revolution. Yeah. And they has kind of had to have this other war before they could more or less get out of systems because the Americans and the British form a pretty strong alliance, not formally after this war. Yeah. Like the, those, no, those relations get pretty, pretty big on this. And you know, a hundred years later, I mean, a hundred years is a hundred years, you know, we're basically fighting with them right against Germany in World War One. So things, things yeah. definitely change um, over time and they become an ally pretty much not right after this war, but it's laying the groundwork for that alliance. And now today, you know, British and Americans, like the closest alliance in the world. Yeah, it's almost like a skirmish with your bigger, like older brother. You know what I mean? Like, hey, you can't yeah. pick on me anymore. Like, don't pick on me. We all know the older brother's probably bigger, stronger, and remained bigger and stronger. But like the little brother's not just gonna take it all the time. I guess that's that's really what came out of this. So I think that's it. That was a nice quick episode on the war of eighteen twelve. You and I are a little busy these days because, you know, school started. Um, yes. So back to work. <laughs> we, yeah, back to work. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yes. So, but we got this. We can. We can, we're still here for you guys, even though it's a little more difficult to find time. But we shall find it. So, if anyone needs anything, you know where to find us. You can find us online, obviously at historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, so on and so forth. So, feel free to email us. We are getting your emails. We are putting ideas that you guys uh, do email to us. We put them in kind of like a queue. We have like this bank of ideas and we're kind of just pick out of it so um maybe some of yours will be picked out or already have been picked out so that's it for this week guys i hope you enjoy your week and for those of you that do listen to this that are starting school again make sure this is a nice fun year enjoy guys stay safe everybody I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.